Hey, quick thing before we dive in. Are you a professional working in the country music industry? Because it is time to renew your membership to the Academy of Country Music. Not a member yet? All good. Now is the time to join. You can still do it. Academy members are among the most respected leaders in the industry and hold the right to vote on ACM awards. They also receive exclusive benefits, including monthly educational panels and invites to networking events, early access to tickets for Academy events, discounts for ACM partner events, regular industry data and insights, and so much more if you are interested in applying for membership or if you need to renew your membership. Visit acmcountry.com slash membership. Again, that's acmcountry.com slash membership. There's time to renew, but time is closing because all renewals are due October 15th. So don't delay. Guys, we're talking about the ACMs here, okay? I mean, this isn't like your Joe Schmo, whatever, you know, this is the ACMs. It's like, get on board. Come on. I don't know what else to tell you. It's like, you got to do it. Okay. Enough of that. Let's dive in. The Zach Kuhn Show. Okay, here we go. Episode 82, Pete Ganbarg on the podcast. Pete is the president of A&R at Atlantic Records. And I got to tell you, I love Pete. He's kind of like one of those guys that you would read about in Hitman. Like, did he have an entire chapter dedicated to him in Hitman? I don't know. You got to go back and look. Pete is, I, I mean, just works with some of the biggest acts in music, works on some of the biggest projects in music. Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, Grace Showman. But we also, we talk about Train. We talk about Santana. We talk about Breland coming out of Nashville. We talk about some of his new favorite acts right now. We talk about the podcast, Rock and Roll High School. Which is, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if it's as good as the Zach Kuhn show, but if you're a podcast fan, if you're a music history fan, it, it's incredible to see Pete interview these legends. He's such a good interviewer. And he, he knows everything. He, you know, he's like, he's, he's a legend himself interviewing the legends. You got to listen to it. I don't think he needs this much of an introduction. It, it's, it's Pete Ganbarg, president of A&R at Atlantic Records. We just, here we go. We just got to get into it. Here we go. Okay, I want to start right at the beginning here. For people who don't know, how do you go from being a 13-year-old kid memorizing the billboard charts to getting your first job in the industry? How do you get your first job in the industry? Well, good question. I got very, very lucky. You know, they say that um, life is all about preparation and luck, right? So I spent all this time studying the business of music and what was going on behind the success of the records that I was hearing about and the lack of success of some other records I was hearing about and really like pouring my heart and soul into it. So when I was in junior high school, high school teenager, um, I decided that I had to become a DJ because that was the only way I could make money to go out and buy records. And the records I was reading about, um, you know, in all these magazines, the only way I would be able to hear them without owning them would be on the radio because there was no internet back then. This is the 80s. And uh, so what ended up happening was getting a job as a DJ and then uh, being able to pocket a couple of hundred bucks a week and spending that all on records and deciding that, hey, I like this DJ thing. I'm going to try to go to a college with a good radio station. So I pick a college that I think I'm picking because it has a really good radio station. 
And, um, you know, it turns out that not only did they have a good radio station, but the college was actually pretty good too. And I met a guy there um, as a 17 year old freshman, my first day. And he's like, oh, you're into the music business. My buddy's dad is in the music business. And one thing led to another. And that's how I got in. Was that SBK Records? So you got well, yeah, day? actually, my first day in our job was at SBK Records in 1989. SBK is a label that doesn't exist now. Right. But back then in 1989, it was I started in May and the first record came out later that year. So I was on literally like, you know, at the label before any releases had come out. And so we were on the ground level together. So when you were coming up, you were memorizing the billboard charts and you would write them down and go out and buy the records Today, if you're coming up in the industry, what do you think is the equivalent of that? Do you still think the billboard charts are what to look at? Or is it the viral charts? What should kids today be memorizing? It's probably, you know, whatever your DSP of choice is, because the the feedback, you know, it used to be, remember, going back to the 80s, everything was kind of on the honor system or lack of honor system. So it was, you know, record stores reporting their chart, radio stations reporting their chart. And, you know, if somebody said, hey, you know, how's that new so-and-so record um, doing this week? Oh, it's doing okay. Hey, you told me you were a fan of, you know, Frank Sinatra. He's playing tonight. You want to go? How's that record doing now? You know, stuff like that. Now you can't do that, you know, thank, 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 um, thank goodness. But any DSP is going to give you real time feedback in terms of popularity, right? So I think if I were the 13 year old kid now that I was then, that's what I would be looking at. The DSP charts. Okay, so you get this job at SBK and you're there for several years. You have a great Ninja Turtles story of getting a placement in a Ninja Turtles movie. And then SBK closes in 97. And you go work for Clive. I'm kind of jumping around a lot, but how do you get, how do you end up in Clive's office? Was that hard to do or was that kind of easy for you to get into his office? Well, I was lucky because um, even though SBK went out of business, you know, I had eight years of learning how to do AR, kind of like learn on the job training um, and met a lot of people. And when SBK closed their doors in 97, there were a bunch of people who were looking out for me and one of them. Um, called me and said, hey, I mentioned your name to Clive Davis. He'd like to meet you. So this is like my favorite story ever. You've told this a million times. I try to understand. I'm trying to understand what, what is the moral of this story, which is you guys are clashing over musical tastes like crazy. And despite endless clashing, he still gives you the job. Is the moral to stand up for what you what, what you think is the right sound or the right song? What's the takeaway from the story? Is there a takeaway from this story? I, I think that I don't know if there was a takeaway from the story back then, but I think there is now. And that is as an A&R person, you have to listen to your ears because the minute that you stop trusting your ears, you're done. And if that means that you're not popular, if that means that you piss people off, so be it. If your ears drive you off a cliff, so be it. The day that you stop listening to what your ears are telling you is the day that you probably stop being an A&R person. Okay, fair enough. Do you experience this also? Because the stories you go into play him all these tapes and everything you think is a hit, he hates everything that he hates, you love, you're totally clashing. Do you ever experience this similar phenomenon today when you're hiring someone? And then does that lead you to hire that person because you like that they have totally different ears than you do? I haven't encountered that. But I think again, 30 years in now, 
you know an A&R person when you meet them. Um, there's a story that I may have told you in the past where one of my senior A&R guys now, um, I met when he was 16 years old right. and was a junior in high school. And he came to my house. I had never met him before, but somebody knew somebody who knew him came to my house. Um, I took one look at him, spoke to him for literally for five seconds. I said, oh, you're an A&R guy. And he's like, huh, what's that? He was 16. But you just know, you know, he might not have even known, but I knew. You know, and conversely, there are people like, I'm an A&R person. No, you're not. What's the giveaway? Is it describable or it's just a visceral gut thing? I think that A&R people know A&R people. A&R is a very weird animal, right? Because you're kind of off in the clouds trying to dream up things that don't really make sense. But if they do make sense, like in your imagination as an A&R person slash dreamer, if they, you know, if it did make sense, what if we did this and it worked, you know, and I can't tell you, or maybe I have <laughs> already, Zach, um, how many times in my career where I've gotten laughed at, where it's like that, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. But then again, it goes back to trusting your ears. I can trust my ears and do it. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but at least I followed my, my instinct and my ears, or I can, you know, listen to this person and say, yeah, they're right. I, it's a stupid idea. I shouldn't do it. And I think, you know, the people that have done the latter and not the former are probably not doing A&R anymore. How many people do you think that everyone that you run into who does A&R is an A&R at the top level, or do you run into a lot of people in the business that are A&Rs and in your mind, you go, you're not an A&R and then they end up not lasting. Like how often do you run into this? I, I don't think it's specific to me or specific to A&R. I think you could say that about anything. Does this person have the, um, you know, the quality and the qualifications to be in the position they're in? You know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I think it's unfair to single out A&R. Are there A&R people who deserve to be A&R people? Yeah. Are there A&R people who are probably best suited somewhere else? Yeah, probably. Fair enough. Okay, so you're working for Clive Davis. How does Room 17 come across your desk? How do you get this demo for this song? What's the story here with Room 17? Well, may I back up and let uh, people let, know why I was looking for a song in the first place? Let's back up. So t tell us the story here. Okay, so the story is I'm working at Arista Records after these horrendous job interviews that you alluded to. And, you know, it's Clive Davis. And to this day, you know, I still think Clive is atop the Mount Rushmore of A&R men of all time. Um, and a great, great, great human being, too, who's, who's definitely been there for me in my life and my career. And I just owe so much of what I've been able to accomplish to Clive. But with that said, back in 1997, after a series of contentious job interviews, he hires me and um, I come in and there's no handbook. Here's your handbook, how to do A&R with Clive Davis. How to do A&R with Clive Davis is basically being thrown into the deep end of the pool when you don't know how to swim. And I've known some great A&R guys who have not made it out of that pool, right? So you kind of have to, he's not going to tell you what to do. You're going to have to figure it out. And some people do, most people don't. 
And I was, you know, in the latter category for a while until I wasn't, right? So I was there trying to get attention as the new guy. Look at me, look at me, you know, Clive, you hired me. Hey, let's work. And nothing was going on. So I was there for around six weeks. And Clive had signed an artist previous to my getting there. So I got there in October, I think in around July, he assigned an artist, an artist who was really well known, but had fallen on, um, you know, not so rich commercial times, you know, had last gold record was 20 years prior to Clive signing or something like that, 15 years. And I came in and I said, you know what, this would be a good project for me, the new guy, right? Because I'm going to come up with a concept here that I think is going to work. And I gave myself the, the assignment to go and come up with the concept. You know, how ANR a lot of times comes down to concept. What are we going to do to make people care about this once celebrated, you know, top of the chart musician? And I wrote a memo. I came up with an idea that I thought was good. Stolen from somebody else, but that was uh, uh, that's another story. From um, there was King. an album, yeah. B there B was B an album out at the time by BB King called Deuces Wild. And going back to when I was 13 years old and reading the charts, I was reading the charts and I see this BB King Deuces Wild selling well, selling better than a BB King record should have been selling in 1997. And I go and I listen to the record and I'm like, wow, great concept, flawed execution because this is going to hit a ceiling because it's never going to get on the radio. If I can apply this concept to this artist that Clive just signed, but twist it in a way that it's more commercial and has the potential to get on the radio, I think not only can we be really successful in terms of how many albums we can sell, but I think it's a Grammy moment too. And so I got really excited and I put this all down in a memo that I sent to Clive. Clive doesn't read emails or he didn't back then. You would send him an email. Um, actually, you would print out the email before you sent it and you would put it on his assistant's desk. He would read it. He would mark it up and he would send it back to you. And so I send him this two page memo and I'm waiting for him to respond. And he never responded. You know, that was 1997. It's now 24 years later. He still hasn't responded to that memo. And in this moment of clarity, I was like, okay, I'm the new guy. He probably saw this two-page memo. Um, he was like, this is the new guy, obviously, trying to butter me up. I'm not interested. And then in my office, I'm thinking, all right, I could either be really upset that he's not going to get back to me, or I could believe in myself and my ears, like I said to you earlier. And I can say, you know what? I don't care if he's not getting back to me. It's a good idea. I'm, I can just start and do it. And if he wants me to stop, he'll tell me to stop because he's I'll the boss, you. right? Right. So I call the artist manager. I introduce myself. I had never spoken to them before. I said, hi, I'm, I'm Pete. I do A&R at Arista. I have an idea for this album. And the manager said to me, really? What is it? And I told him, he's like, wow, that sounds great. When can we start? And I said, let's start now. And we did. And um, Clive never told me to stop. And that was Carlos Santana. The album was Supernatural. We applied the BB King concept of the duets, but we made sure that what I did is I did all this homework where I looked up artists who mentioned Carlos Santana as an influence, artists who were a generation younger, who were currently on the radio, right? And so I would call them and I would say, hey, do you want to collaborate with Carlos Santana?
And they would always say, oh, yes, absolutely. And I'm like, not so fast. Price of admission, you know, hit one, hit rec- <laughs> one hit song, right? One hit song. One hit song. And um, so we did that. And we did that for around a year and a half of just kind of like having fun with people like Dave Matthews and Wyclef Sean and Lauren Hill and Everlast and Eagle Eye Cherry and, you know, Eric Clapton and all these people from running the gamut of 1997 music. But fast forward to the beginning of 1999 and I got a knock on my door from Clive's number two. He's like, Hey, that Santana record you've been working on is coming out in June. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not finished. They're like, one, you've spent way too much money. Two, you're finished. And three, the record's coming out in June. Goodbye. And at this point, I've poured everything I have, my entire heart and soul into this record, but I don't have what I think is a first single. And I'm really upset because now they're going to force my hand. And it's kind of like taking a cake, this beautiful cake out of the oven, you know, 75% fully baked, right? Right. So at the same time, there's this amazing A&R guy who doesn't get a lot of credit for what he's done, you know, for the history of music. His name is Jerry Griffith. And Jerry was the one who in the early 80s worked for Clive Davis and told him about a singer singing at a club called Sweetwaters. That was Whitney Houston. Um, And Clive went that night, signed Whitney and the rest is history. And Jerry is just the greatest guy in the world. And he became a bit of an unofficial rabbi for me when I was working at Arista because Jerry had done his uh, his time at Arista a bunch of times with Clive. And he kind of knew how to maneuver you know, as an, a new A&R guy, what to do and what not to do. So there were times that I would call Jerry and I would say, help, what should I do? This time, Jerry called me out of the blue and he said, hey, you still working on that Santana record? And I said, yeah. He's like, you done? I'm like, well, they think I'm done, but I don't think I'm done. I need a single. He's like, oh, good timing. I think I have somebody you should meet. Um, I, I'm going to be working with this songwriter. His name's Ital Schur, and he's had a hit recently with Maxwell called Ascension. And I was telling him about your Santana record. He says he has a hit idea. I said, wow, this timing could be, could be perfect. Send them up. And so the next day, Talshur comes up to my office and he has a cassette tape of a song called Room 17. And he plays me this song and I listen to it. And Ital, I had never met before, but very kind of brash. Um, I don't want to say cocky, but cocky um, kid. And the song ends. He's like, it's great, right? It's your single, right? And I said, well, I've got good news and bad news based on one listen here. The, the good news is that um, the track, the music's really good. Right. But the bad news is that lyric doesn't work for Carlos Santana. He would never say room 17. It's about a hotel room, right? And I said, you know what, though? I think I could do something with the music. If you give me the music, strip away the lyric. Now, now that shit's done all the time. But back then, he was like, really? He's like, I don't think I want to do that. I think this is a hit song. Why I'm is like, that fine. done now? But it wasn't really done back then. I, I never really thought about that. I would have thought that, that just has always been done. Why, why is yeah, it Yeah, I mean, now? because now it's just a button. You mute it's the lead easy. vocal yeah, yeah. in your Pro Tools and, you know, and right. you have a track. Back then, you know, the technology wasn't as advanced. But right. okay, so- we, we went back and forth and we fought about it. And he, you know, was calling me every curse word in the book. He's like, this is a hit song. If you can't hear it, you're deaf. I'm like, I think it's half a hit song. Give me the track. And ultimately he relented and gave me the track. So a couple of days later, I'm listening to this track. And this was before MP3s, right? So I call up a friend of mine. 
who's this incredible publisher named Evan Lamberg. He now runs Universal Music Publishing in LA. Um, back then he was at EMI Music Publishing and I play him the track. It's no longer Room 17. It's just the Room 17 instrumental, no lyrics. And I said, I need somebody. I think this is the missing link for my single, um, but I need somebody to write a hit record on top of it, a hit top line. And I play it for him and he listens to it. He's like, wow, that's really good. He's like, that's for Santana. I said, yeah, I just need the right lyric. He's like, I got it. I'm like, what do you got, Evan? He's like, Rob Thomas. And again, this is 1997. I'm like, Rob Thomas, the, the lead singer of Matchbox 20? He's like, Pete, you trust me? I said, yeah, Evan, you've been my friend since I've been in the business. You know, um, I trust you implicitly. Yeah. He said, Pete, don't tell this to any other writers that I've ever signed, but Rob could be the best songwriter I've ever worked with. He's like, people just know this one side of him with his band, but trust me, he is one of the great songwriters of our time. And I said, I trust you. He's like, can you, can I send this to Rob? I said, please. So he sends it to Rob and sometimes the stars line up, right? Because what we didn't know back then is that Rob's girlfriend was his, or maybe his fiance at the time, now his wife, Marisol, is Spanish. He listened to the song. He had just gotten off tour with Matchbox 20. He was home. He was doing nothing. He was smoking pot and playing PlayStation, staring at his gorgeous, you know, love of his life, um, fiance. Here's this music. It inspires him to write a love letter to Marisol. And that's smooth. So a couple of weeks later, or maybe not even a couple of, uh, maybe a week later, we're in Evan's office and me, Evan and Rob Thomas, who I'd never met before. And Rob is holding a, um, you know, a, um, notebook a yellow spiral notebook yeah um notepad and he starts singing to the track he hadn't even recorded it yet he's singing it live reading the lyrics on his piece of paper and he finished it and he looks at evan and evan is like rob that's incredible you nailed it and then they look at me and i'm shaking my head and evan is shooting me daggers he's like what are you doing i said i love it rob except i don't think you have a chorus he's like no no here's the chorus i said i don't think that's a chorus and if you said this life was good enough, I said, I think that's a pre-chorus. I, I think you have a bigger melody in there to kind of like slam dunk your chorus I did. And to his credit, he's like, all right, let me, let me see. And he went home and that assignment came, you know, came back and it was just like the ocean under the moon. So we got it, you know, and um, so anyway, to answer your question in a very long about verbose way, Room 17 became Smooth. Smooth became Santana's first single, won nine Grammys, um, including, you know, the Grammys for Supernatural, sold 35 million copies and, you know, the rest, the rest as they say. <laughs> yeah. So do these moments ever haunt you when you think about how subtle it is, where, where the fact that you told him in that moment to turn the the chorus into the pre-chorus and like, and to go back and write another chorus, does it ever haunt you that if you hadn't said that you might've had that moment or do you ever think about it or you don't really it, think it about goes, it? It goes back to what I said before is you got to trust your ears. And if your yeah. ears tell you something, you have to, you know, this is what, if, if I were a pastry chef, right. I would trust, you know, my fingers. I don't know. You know, is that what pastry chefs do? Your, you know, your, whatever your taste buds or yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, whatever it is, but as A&R people, you know, you remember that episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza becomes the um, the foot model? 
Yeah. And he's like, these feet are perfect feet. You know, it's sometimes like, well, I don't have perfect feet, but I have to listen to my ears because that's how, you know, I make my living. Right. Right. As the president <laughs> of AR at Atlantic Records, it's a great analogy. As the president of AR Atlantic Records, do you think about creating a culture where people can just go and execute ideas? Or is the point that that culture, it's not even about the culture, it's about the people who are willing to take their ideas and execute them and finding the right people. How do you think about that, that you were in an environment where you could run with your ideas? Is that something you have to create or is that about hiring the right people? Well, I think that I don't have to create it because I think it was there before I got there. You know, the great thing about Atlantic is Atlantic has the most stable executive management team just in terms of tenure of any label in the music business. You know, Craig Kalman, who's my boss and the CEO of Atlantic, has been at Atlantic for 30 years, and he's not much older than I am. Um, Julie Greenwald, who's our COO and Craig's partner in crime, you know, they run the label together. Julie's been there over 15 years now, probably closer to 20. I'm there 13 years, and of the department heads, I'm still the rookie. Fair enough. So when you leave, when Clive leaves Arista, which is always funny because he left at kind of at the peak of the Santana moment when they let him go, basically, he had just won the Grammys and then they basically kick him out of Arista and he makes you an offer to go with him and you end up staying. Do you think that in the industry, it's always good to go with your champions and to go with the legends? Was that, do you ever look back and question that decision in hindsight? It all worked out in the end. But, yeah, and, it worked and, out in the end, but it was the it was the single most wrong decision I've ever made in my life. Do you think so? A hundred percent. Why? Why is that? Because Clive is the one who believed in me. Yeah. And who let me kind of, you know, spend a lot of his company's money on making this kind of like moonshot album with Santana. You know, not everybody would have done that. And he believed in me. He had faith in me. He had faith in me to hire me after I disagreed with his taste and he disagreed with my taste, you know? And I think that what you need to do is you need to realize, well, I got a good thing with him. Um, and I don't care if they're offering me more money here. I don't care if they're whispering in my ear that great things are going to happen. I don't care if more money for me here means more money for, you know, the people who are representing me, which is why they're probably pushing me to stay. You know, all of these things I know now, but back then I was probably too young. And um, I definitely learned a lesson that, you know, you take less money to go with the people who understand you and the people you understand. And, you know, I have no idea what my life would have been like if I had just gone with, with Clive to J Records. But, um, you know, like you said, Everything works out in the end and, you know, it wouldn't be life if we didn't make some mistakes. Fair enough. Okay. So after a couple of years at Epic, you end up starting Pure Tone Music. Did you like being your own boss? How, how did this company come together? Well, it, it basically came out of necessity because I went from being, you know, the hottest guy in the world, you know, A&R wise with Supernatural and, you know, a lot of people throwing crazy shit at me and, um, and then, you know, there's a great, um, there's a great quote. Uh, one of my bosses has, you know, what comes after hot cold. cold. <laughs> so I got ice cold. <laughs> um, and the Epic experience, I was hired by a wonderful woman named, uh, Polly Anthony 
And um, I worked for Polly for a couple of years and then she got let go and then I got let go. It was just really ugly. The, the whole kind of Sony politic back then was ugly. And when I got fired, I was cold. I was probably overpriced as an A&R person and I had to prove it to myself. I, I mean, not only to myself, I had to prove it to the industry that I was worth it. And the only way that I could do that is to kind of up the stakes a little bit. And by then I had, you know, a couple of young kids and a wife and, um, all right, you know, if I'm gonna, if the kids are going to eat, I'm going to have to figure out how to make a living, you know, and I'm not going to have this cushy contract and I'm not going to have this cushy paycheck. And it turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me because it forced me to figure out, okay, one, am I any good at this? Was the supernatural Santana success a fluke? Um, and if nobody wants to hire me now, how am I going to make money? Right. And so all of those things, you know, with these poor little children starving here in my home, you know, how am I going to make it work? And I figured out a way to make it work. Did you ever think about creating like a full-blown label similar to Clive had? Like, did he ever encourage you to do that and turn, because because it was really an A&R consulting company. Did, it, did you ever think I could turn this into a label or did that not cross your mind? I started out and here's where Clive threw me you know, one of the many lifelines that he's thrown me in my career, I, it started out as a production company and as a publishing company. And I started um, spending my own money on artists and writers. And, um, and then one day Clive called me and he said, hey, could you A&R some records for me? And he never offered me a full-time job. I never asked for one. But it all, you know, all of a sudden we ended up kind of, you know, completing each other's sentences again, like we had back in Arista days. And he's like, I need somebody to A&R a new Santana record. I'm like, yeah, sure. I need somebody to A&R a Kenny G duets record. Sure. You know, because for me, I'll A&R anything. I just love a creative challenge. The music um, becomes secondary. I refer to myself as genre agnostic. I don't care, you know, right. if it's Kenny G and we're going to do duets. I said to Clive, I said, well, Clive, you know, obviously Kenny is one of the most successful artists that you've ever discovered. Um, and I thought he would be a little bit, um, you know, precious about how we approach this duets album A&R wise. I said, does it have to be all instrumental? Can it be vocal? You know, what kind of duet partners do you want? You know what he said to me? Figure like, it out. You, fig you figure it out. And that album, you know, I had so much fun because I was like, okay, Kenny, you're Kenny G, right? You've sold hundreds of millions of records and now you're going to do a duets album. Who would you want on the record? So I just made a, um, a wish list and I started calling and they all started saying, yes, Earth, Wind and Fire, Barbara Streisand, you know, Burt Backrack, you, you name it, you know. And I remember like um, walking down the street, my cell phone rang and it was an L.A. number that I didn't recognize. And I answered the phone I'm like, hello. Hey, is this Pete? Yeah. Hey, it's Burt Backrack. I'm like, oh, my God, this is awesome. <laughs> But did you ever consider turning it into an actual label or are you, are you happiest being purely on the creative side and doing the A&R and you don't want to deal with, you know, the other nonsense? I actually, I signed that. a couple of acts. I put out a couple of records. I signed a couple of writers. I published a couple of songs and I realized, oh, if I do this, the money goes out. <laughs> if I do, <laughs> if I do, you know, what Clive is, is hiring me to do, the money comes in. Right. And in, the right. great thing about having Clive as your first client as an A&R consultant 
is, you know, after so much time in the business, my friends would call, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm A&Ring some records independently for Clive. What do you mean? Clive's hiring you and paying you to work independently for him? And you A&R records for him? I'm like, yeah. Can you do it for us? Sure. And before you know it, pretty much every label group was my client. So there was so much work in terms of actually A&Ring records for other label clients that the artists that I signed and the writers that I signed ultimately took a backseat. A quick reminder before we dive back in. If you are a professional working in the country music industry, it is time, the time is now to renew your membership to the Academy of Country Music. If you're not a member yet, that's okay. There's still time to join. Academy members are among the most respected leaders in the industry and hold the right to vote on ACM awards. They also receive exclusive benefits, including monthly educational panels and invites to networking events, early access to tickets for Academy events, discounts for ACM partner events, regular industry data and insights, and so much more. If you're interested in applying for membership or if you need to renew your membership, visit acmcountry.com slash membership. Again, that's acmcountry.com slash membership. All applications and renewals are due by October 15th, so don't delay. You got time, not that much time. You got, you got like a month. ACMs, come on, get involved. It's no brainer. Back to the episode. Here we go. I think in the industry, you often hear managers and artists who are worried about making their first impression and timing the first impression perfectly for having the music together, maybe their brand together, certain things. For someone who looks at new artists all the time, how important is the first impression? Can you make it too early or do you pretty much always see through, even if the music or the brand isn't totally together, do you usually see that there's something here or not? No, you, you can't go on first impression. You have to. Um, I, I realized a long time ago that um, the two best emotions that you can have when you're listening to music is you can either love something or hate something. Those are the two best emotions. If it's just okay, that's the worst emotion in the world because the polar opposites, the love and the hate are eliciting a severe emotion. And sometimes I hate this so much. This is the worst thing that I've ever heard. It's making my skin crawl. I'll end up signing that artist eventually. Really? Yeah, because it ultimately, I realized, wow, it elicited an emotion out of me. Why? How often do you meet someone that sort of flatlines and you go, I don't know if I see anything here, not even hate, but just this isn't going to work out. And five years they turn around and, and you know, your impression, your first impression was totally wrong. Or does your first impression usually ride on one side and does it usually end up being right? I, I've been doing this 30 years. And I had one boss who said, hey, if you do this long enough, you're not doing it right unless you miss a few. Unless you miss a few. Okay, fair enough. When you go on your morning runs, Pete, and you curate the competition, you listen to the competition on your morning runs, how do you curate what you listen to? You pick about 20 songs, I guess, or over an hour. How do you, do you organize and go through labels that you listen to? Or how do you pick what goes on the playlist during your morning runs? It's really simple. It's what's popular. You know, this thing just got added to today's top hits. I've never heard it. Throw it on the playlist. This is, you know, number four most added at radio. I've never heard it. 
goes on the playlist. Um, you know, one of my A&R kids is telling me that this is a record I need to listen to on another label. Goes on the playlist. Okay, fair enough. On your podcast, which I want to talk about also, Rock and Roll High School. On the episode with Todd Rudgren, I thought he said something interesting, which is the song is all that matters, which we know, of course. And he said the production almost doesn't matter because kids are listening on AirPods and and headphones and and the production is almost secondary. He he really shot down the production value, which I thought was interesting. As an A and R person, how do you balance this? Do you labor over the production, or if the song is amazing and the production is close enough, will you ship it out? I think that you want it's it's the song and it's the record, and a lot of people don't realize the difference in the two. Right, the song itself is the copyright. You want to capture that copyright in the best production and arrangement and performance that this specific artist can can bring to it. So knowing that it's going be to be listened to by a lot of people compressed and smushed and, you know, down to an MP3 and in shitty headphones. Um, you just wanted to sound good. You know, I mean, I remember we used to do mastering at a studio where the guy had an AM radio car speaker where we would reference at him and you would say, well, that sounds like shit. Well, that's how most people are going to be listening. What does it sound like? Does it sound good there? It sounds good there. It's going to sound good everywhere. What's the story with Hey Soul Sister, where didn't you give a production note that totally changed the song or the feeling of the song? No, actually, that was one that I got really right until I got really wrong or one that I got really wrong until I got really right. So, um, you know, again, I've been doing this so long. I'm happy to tell you when I got something wrong. <laughs> but um, I was working with Pat Monahan. He was one of my clients um, as an A&R consultant. Um, I got hired. Columbia Records hired me to A&R Train Record. And I suggested to Pat, who you know, was really looking for input because he wasn't really sure what to do at that point for train. This was back in the mid 2000s, maybe 2006, 2007. And he's like, I'm, I'm not sure what I should do. Do you have any suggestions? And I said, um, I think you should co-write. He's like, I don't usually co-write for train. I said, I think you should. He's like, okay. Um, and we, we kind of mapped out something where, um, I gave him one of my kind of win one for the Gipper speeches, which is like complete, you know, like, oh, really? Like eye rolling stuff. But it worked. It was like, hey, remember the audience for Meet Virginia 10 years ago? That audience is grown up now. And, you know, if there was if 10 years ago it was a young woman in at a frat party getting drunk and dancing and having a great time. To, and your song was the soundtrack of that night, one of the great nights of her life. Ten years later, she's married. She has two kids. She loves Train. You just haven't given her a reason lately to want to love a Train song again. Let's write a song for her, right? Right. And I put Pat in the room with these two songwriter friends of mine from Norway who call themselves Espionage, Amund and Espin. And I had had some success with them with some of the American Idol work I was doing as a consultant. And they went in and the first song they wrote was a song called Brick by Brick. And I went in and everything about this song to me was right. It was, you know, brick by brick. We can build this from the floor. You know, it'll be better than it was before. And I'm like, oh, well, that lyric can be about a relationship between two people, but it can also be, a, you know, on another level, on a whole different level, be about train and their audience. And I'm like, this is perfect. You guys nailed it. One shot out. I love this. 
The next day they call me back and they're like, we wrote something else. Can you come in and listen? And they played me the song. I'm like, I love Brick by Brick better. And that was Hey Soul Sister. So, you know, again, always happy to, to call it like I see it, even, even when I'm not 100% right. But was it you, and maybe I have this wrong, but was it you with Hey Soul Sister that, was it more produced originally? How does the ukulele go? Yeah, it actually, there is, um, that may, may not have been my idea. I, I don't remember, honestly, but I know that, in my folders, I have a hundred versions of Hey Soul Sister. There's the rock version, then there's this version. After the song became a hit, we actually did an amazing country version with pedal steel and, and fiddle. I, I don't even know if that ever came out, but it's great. I, I would love to hear that. I was going to say, I'm curious if that's out. <laughs> um, talk to me about your podcast for a minute, which has been throughout the past year, so fun to listen to. It's Seeing you with these guys is incredible because you just know everything about them. And you, you just, you're, you're, you're just, it's so fun to hear you talk with some of these legends. How does this idea come together? And are it's, is it still happening? Cause we ended the first season. When's the second season coming out? Well, we are, um, you know, we're going to do a second season. I just want to, um, you know, I want to use cocaines and cocaine and rhinestones as a, uh, as the, um, template to hold up to the light. Cause he took forever for his second season and the, the episodes are longer now. I feel like when I'm listening to them, I'm like at some like really, really high level lecture at a high level, you know, college class, but I'm learning so much. Oh my God. You know, um, I think that how it started was um, one of my A&R kids um, came into work one day wearing a t-shirt of a band that I know he didn't know because it was too young to know it. And I'm like, why are you wearing that? It's like, what do you mean? It's cool. I'm like, you don't know who the band is. He's like, yes, I do. I'm like, no, you don't name a song. He's like, I don't know. You know, and it became this thing where he's like, Pete, you're too old. Nobody my, my age knows this stuff. And, and I'm like, well, you should. If you're going to be an A&R person, you should really know the history. And so I started teaching class to him and the other A&Rs and ultimately to anyone at Atlantic who was interested in learning. I'm like, guys, you should know who Buddy Holly was. You should know who Little Richard was. You should know who Chuck Berry was. Um, and we started and the class became popular. And when we finished chronologically getting up to the current day, um, I said I could go back and do it again, or I could shake it up a little bit and maybe reach out to some people who helped shape the history of contemporary music and ask them if they would come in and talk to the staff. And little by little that happened and the guests kept getting, you know, more and more renowned. And in the early days of the pandemic it was like, wow, we should not just keep this to ourselves at Atlantic. We should, you know, turn this into a podcast and share it with the world. And that's how we, uh, we started it. You learn a lot when you do these interviews or do you kind of know it all already? Oh my God. I learned so much. And the one of the reasons I love doing it is because I think that it makes me a better A&R person now learning so much about how these records were recorded and how these songs that we have always taken for granted as as just hits and part of the fabric almost didn't happen, you know, and the stories behind the songs like I sat with um, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff and we were talking about Philly International and I said, how do you get your song ideas? And they said, well, we can give you one example. You know, I mean, uh, Kenny Gamble wrote this song called Expressway to Your Heart 
trying to get to his girlfriend's house sitting in traffic, you know, it gets too crowded uh, uh, with the horns, you know, so it's coming from real life. And then he was like, they used to, um, the two of them used to have breakfast every day um, before they would go up to um, write songs, Kenny and Leon, and they would go to the same place to have breakfast. And they're looking around and looking for ideas of what they're going to write about that day. And Leon says to Kenny, says, hey, Gamble, see that guy over there sitting with that girl? Yeah, I know that guy. That's not his wife. <laughs> and they went upstairs and they wrote me and Mrs. Jones. You know, if I hadn't been talking to them, I don't know if I would have ever heard that story. And how amazing, you know, is, is that story to create a song that we all know now for the rest of time. Incredible. Do you ever get nervous talking to any legends or at this point you talk to everyone and, and, and everyone's the same? No, I mean, I'm still fascinated by everybody I get to talk to because if I'm talking to them, it means that they have done something to, um, you know, leave an indelible footprint in the history of contemporary music. And um, I'm just fascinated by the whole thing at, at you know, I think at my core, I'm, I'm just that same 13-year-old kid who's fascinated by, you know, these songs and these artists and these writers and these producers, because I can't do that. You know, I, I do what I do, but I can't do that. Right. Okay. Everyone has to listen to Rock and Roll High School, the podcast, if you haven't already, with Pete Gamborg. When you A&R a cast album like Hamilton, for example, where the work kind of already exists... How is that process different than doing a an, an regular album with an artist? Like, what does that look like to A&R a cast album? Well, it's it's kind of amazing. And, and we lucked out on that one because, <laughs> like I said before, you're, you know, A&R is another word for dreamer. Yeah. And I remember, you know, seeing a table reading of Hamilton um, before it was ever staged because um, there was a publisher at Warner Chapel Music at the time who published Lin-Manuel Miranda, who had signed him, a guy named Sean Flavin. And I had told Sean that I was a big fan of Lin's because I was a big fan of his first show in the Heights. And Lin and I both shared an alma mater with Westland University in Connecticut. And, um, and Sean remembered that. And Sean said, hey, Lin's working on a new show. You want to come down to a reading with me? And that was Hamilton. And I came back to Atlantic and I said to Craig, my boss, I said, we have to do this. Um, but you're going to have to protect me here because on paper, it makes no sense. It's a lot of money. You know, when you record a Broadway cast album, that's two CDs worth of music because the show itself is two and a half hours long. Um, it's going to be expensive because of union costs. Right. And, you know, those are things that are out of your control. And, you know, again, this does not make sense on paper. And Craig had my back the whole time. And we, I, I think the difference that we had with Hamilton is we approached the recording of Hamilton like we would approach the recording of any, you know, A-level pop project. And we spent the money, you know, we spent the money on the studios. We spent the money on the time, not worrying about the union costs. You know, a lot of times Broadway cast albums are funded by the actual producers of the shows as almost like a souvenir advertisement for their show. And they don't spend as much money as a record company might on a pop record. They and, do it in one day. It gets recorded. Yeah. In one yeah. Day. And, and I said, you know what, if we're going to go in, we're going to go all in. 
And and is that like is that your idea that because they how long did they they spent like four days recording or how long did they end up recording the cast album? Oh, we we took forever. Oh, it took because forever? I mean, yeah. One of the great things we recorded the orchestra in a big room, but we had um, we have our own studio, so we were able to do a lot of work in our own studio. And thank God because the guys who were actually doing the frontline recording and engineering on the record were in our building every day coming up and we became friendly with them. Yeah. And one day, one of them, Alex Lackamore, who is, you know, Lynn's right arm, um, orchestrator, arranger, conductor, you know, genius, genius, musical person. Um, he said to me one day, he's like, Pete, I really like you guys. I'm like, great, Alex, we like you too. He said, we should do more together. I said, great. He's like, I'm working on something new. I would love to do it with you. And I said, great. What is it? He's like, it's this new show called Dear Evan Hansen. I said, great. And we ended up doing Dear Evan Hansen. And then meeting his friends who wrote that show, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. Yep. Um, and they said, Pete, we like working with you. We're working on this new movie called <laughs> The Greatest Showman. You know, so it becomes, we did that soundtrack too, you know? And then it's the like, thing. here's the star of our Dear Evan Hansen musical. His name's Ben Platt. I'm like, great, I'll sign you too. You know, so it becomes kind of the gift that keeps giving. Right. I've heard there's, I think there's a story that someone was playing the Hamilton record to Questlove. And he said, how do we make this more of a pop record? And he just said, turn the drums up. Is that true? <laughs> That's, that is true. Is that what, so what, so the drums were lower in the mix and he says, turn them up and they, and they get louder. And, and that's yes, what, ab- that absolutely. Was... I remember the, the mix playback and, you know, his comment on every song, drums need to be louder. <laughs> and do you, I don't know if you trust that because he's a drummer. So yeah, well, you, you know, I trust pretty much anything that Questlove says, I'm good. It, it It's good. Okay. Couple rapid fire questions here. On the podcast, you say your favorite song is Wichita Lineman. Is that true? Why is that your favorite song? 100% true. Why is that your favorite song? Because it's the type of song that I don't think I appreciated before I got to a certain age. You know, the certain types of foods you eat that, you know, if you're a six-year-old, you're probably not going to want caviar. Yeah. You know, when you're a 12-year-old, you're probably not going to appreciate Wichita Lineman. For me, Wichita Lineman is the perfect coming together of copyright, vocal, performance, and production. It's, you know, I said so to Jimmy Webb when I had him on the podcast. Um, And he's got, you know, he's, this guy, you know, what he created, Wichita Lineman, the song, The Highwayman, you know, um, Galveston, you know, I mean, you just listen to these songs and you're like, yeah, I mean, hats off. That these are as good as it gets. Highwayman is one of my favorite songs. That I feel like it's kind of gone in the wind. Like I feel like people don't really talk about it anymore. But it's one of the most haunting, eerie songs. It's one of my favorites, actually. Okay, favorite memory working at Atlantic. There was a very early A and R meeting where I think everybody um, was still sizing me up. I was on the job maybe for a couple of months. The A&R staff is sizing me up here, new head of A&R. What does he know? You know, my bosses were sizing me up. And I was working with a rock band, a Christian rock band called Skillet. And um, my friend Howard Benson was producing the record. And we came up with this song called Monster. And it was going to be the first single from the record. And somebody, you know, came up in in the A&R meeting. uh, Let's hear the first single from the Skillet record. And... They said, Pete, how are you feeling about this? I said, this is going to be the biggest record this band's ever had. Um, It's a smash. 
and I play them the song. And not only did um, not one person in the room agree with me, but they all laughed at me because there's a sound effect at the end of the song where John Cooper, the lead singer of Skillet, sings the lyric, sometimes I feel like a monster. And Howard, in his crazy genius, took a vocal effect and made it sound like a monster voice, like something you would see like in the old monster movies, right? Yeah. And they all looked at me in this A&R meeting and said, Pete, that's the corniest stuff we've ever heard. You know, and basically like, we should laugh you out of this room. And I said, okay, with all due respect, you're all wrong. And I'll tell you why. You all live in New York or you all live in LA. You're sitting here on the 35th story of, a, of an office building, you know, like um, ivory tower, as they say. This song isn't for you. There are 48 other states besides New York and California. And somewhere there's a guy wearing a cat diesel truck, driving a tractor. He's going to call a radio station and say, can you play the song with the monster voice? <laughs> And that's exactly what happened. And that song is now five times platinum halfway to diamond. You know, when that song became a hit, they stopped questioning me. They're like, well, that guy knows stuff that we don't know, you know, knows, because we're, we're thinking about, I was never the cool guy as an A&R guy. My records were never on, you know, the critics top 10 and I don't care. You know, it's like, I, I used to say that I have Walmart taste. I, I don't care. I, I love things that are, you know, loved by the masses Fair enough. Okay. From your staff at Atlantic, what, what is the way to your heart and what pisses you off? I think what pisses me off is when they think they know better than the CEO of the label. You know, one of my A&R people did something to me a few months ago where it was just really stupid. And it was like when your kid pisses you off. Yeah. I just stopped talking to him for a couple of weeks. I'm like, I, I need to detox from you. You know, I think he got the message. Um, the way to my heart is to appreciate the history of Atlantic, to appreciate the history of A&R, to understand why we get to do what we get to do now. We get to do A&R at Atlantic Records. You know, the label that was formed in 1947 by a Turkish immigrant named Ahmed Erdogan, you know, who just wanted to record music that he liked. Yeah. You know? that ultimately included Jerry Wexler and Tom Dowd and Arif Martin and, you know, guys who ended up creating some of the most iconic recordings of all time, right? We get to be in their footsteps. Let's make them proud. That, that, that is a way to my heart. A hundred percent. You sometimes hear industry people and maybe they're ignorant saying that the industry is now moving to LA. There's very little left in New York. Any truth to that? Or are, do you feel like New York is on the pulse or, or that's not as true as people say it is? It doesn't really matter because especially in the last year and a half, there have been more remote writing sessions than I've ever seen in my life. It really doesn't matter where you are. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I'm not leaving. I love New York. Where are you going to go? You can't go anywhere else. I agree. <laughs> okay. In our final moments together, who is an artist that we need to know right now? Well, since you are talking to me from Nashville, I believe, 
I'm actually in New York visiting, but this typically I would be talking to you from Nashville. Yes. Okay. Let's edit the last five seconds. <laughs> now, um, I've got Nashville on the brain. I want to talk about an artist that um, nobody knows about because she hasn't released any music. Her name is Eloise Alterman. And I signed her to Atco Records, speaking of Atlantic's history. Yes. Um, which you were president of. Um, I have a label deal with an amazing publisher in Nashville named Carla Wallace, who has a um, company with Carrie O'Neill called Big Yellow Dog. Yep. And Carla, around a year ago, sent me music from Eloise, who she signed as a songwriter to her publishing company. And I heard it and I just flipped because going back to that level of songwriting where you can evoke an emotion, I, I just I, I had to sign her. And as I was listening to her music, I said, wow, you know who's going to really, really connect with this? My friend Dave Cobb. And I sent Eloise to Dave Cobb, and he called me right away and said, Pete, I love this. Can I meet her? And um, he made a record, and it's brilliant, and it's coming out um, probably early next year. Okay, be on the lookout. How involved were you on the Breland Project? Um, more as, you know, not as hands-on A&R, um, but I'm a massive fan. I mean, talk about writing. That guy won. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but before he put any records out, before he had a record deal, he won the um, the prize for best future songwriter from the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And, I didn't know um, that. Yeah. And, you know, that's something. That's the Songwriters Hall of Fame. That's yeah. Gambling Huff. That's Jimmy Webb right there, right? And, um, and I, you know, very, very, um, am proud that I sit on the board of governors at the, um, at the songwriters hall of fame now, and to see Breland's success is, is thrilling. I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan. Yeah. He just launched his first tour. Um, wrapping up here. I'm just curious earlier on in the pandemic, everybody, it, at least the, the hype was that everyone was signing off at TikTok. Is that trend kind of dying down or people starting to realize that a viral hit isn't worth jumping on to sign or do you think generally in the industry are people still signing off at TikTok, or do you think they're starting to look in other places? I, I can only speak to Atlantic. Um, at Atlantic, we care about the long-term artist strategy and TikTok is not usually where you go for long-term artist strategy. Um, that said, if we can find an incredible artist who just happens to be using TikTok as their platform to share their art with the world, sure, but we're not going to sign them because of TikTok, you know, um, it's more about TikTok as a means to the end of great art that Atlantic can help curate and bring to the masses. Why does Atlantic have the reputation of being a label that is in it for the long haul with ours? Or how do how do like is that because everyone's been there for so long and they're willing yeah, we don't, to play we don't the have long to game? we don't have to worry about oh the new guy is coming in and he's gonna drop all the acts, you know? No, we, you know. We don't have to worry about that, so we don't have to cut corners. And if we don't have to cut corners, we can take our time. And artist development takes time. You know, it's market to market, city to city, you know, um, playing to one fan at a time, you know, playing the 100 cap room, coming back, playing the 250 cap room, coming back, playing the 500 cap room. It takes time and takes patience and takes belief on the side of the label and the investment on the side of the label. And, you know, once we sign an artist, we believe and we're in it, you know, and, and we will take that patient approach. And hopefully that band that we're seeing tonight in front of 100 kids, you know, the first time into a market, you know, shut our eyes five years from now, we'll be side stage at an arena seeing them headline. Absolutely. Pete, we have only scratched the surface here. Any <laughs> pressing that we have left out? Have we not mentioned anything pressing? 
Um, no, I think, look, I, I think you're doing a great thing. Uh, it was great having lunch with you a couple of months ago in New York, getting to know you. And I love the fact that you're so, your unbridled enthusiasm about music is infectious and keep it up. I appreciate it, Pete. Thank you so much for taking the time and hope, hope we get the chance to connect again soon. You got it. Be good, Zach. Wow, Pete Ganbarg on the podcast. I mean, we've had some amazing guests on this show, but Pete is among the upper echelons. Just so awesome talking with him. By the way, if seriously, if you are a music history fan, if you're a music fan, Rock and Roll High School Pete's podcast, you have to check this out wherever you listen to podcasts. It's so good. I, I learned so much every episode, and hearing Pete talk with some of these legends is so fun. You've got to check it out. Rock and Roll High School, wherever you listen to podcasts. Season two might be coming soon. We don't know when, but who knows? Who knows? Be on the lookout. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. The Zach Kuhn Show is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. And we're proud to be part of it. It's a great network with some really great shows. Check them out. That's it. That's all I got for this week. We'll see you next time. Bye.